This is the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit SalemPresWS.org. That's SalemPresWS.org. We believe preaching is best when experience is part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Usually we meet Sunday evenings in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. We hope to return to that soon. And as you enjoy this podcast, we hope you'll come with us when we can gather in person. scripture reading for this evening comes from Romans chapter 8 verses 1 through 11 from the New Living Translation and I will give you a minute to find that it's in the bulletin but if you'd like to look on in your own Bible I'll let you turn there the book of Romans the first book of Paul's letters after the book of Acts in the New Testament chapter 8 verses 1 through 11 and if, if you um, would like to, as, a, as an act of um, reverence, um, just acknowledging that we are in the presence of the holy creator of the universe, and this is his word, um, you are welcome to stand for the reading of God's word. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the spirit. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's law, and it never will. That's why those who are still under control of their sinful nature can never please God. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit, if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all. 
And Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by this same Spirit living within you. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. So we are um, looking now at Romans 8, and we've come to, in some ways, the, the some would consider this the most important uh, chapter of Romans. And, and you're excited. I'm excited about Romans 8. I think Jonah's excited about Romans 8. Uh, he's preaching next week. Um, some have called this the Holy of Holies in Scripture because, again, most important chapter potentially or the most important book potentially. So uh, the reason it's considered so um, important in part is because the Holy Spirit just dominates the whole chapter. Um, the Spirit is 31 times mentioned in this uh, chapter and using different names, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit, but the third person of the Trinity. And in many ways, um, this chapter, although it's about the Spirit, is also about his work, which is to give us assurance. Assurance of salvation both begins, there's no condemnation, and ends, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. It's the bookends of this chapter. And um, the last chapter we were looking at was about how we're under this uh, bondage, we can't do what we want to do, the law is not strong enough to help us do it, um, we are under the bondage of, of our sin, um, what Paul uh, calls in this chapter the flesh. And so the Holy Spirit, uh, you can think of as invading the realm of the flesh. It's a kind of a divine counterattack. And it's God coming actually from within us to break us out of our um, domination by the powers of sin. Uh, the word sinful nature is used. So if you look, uh, I believe it's seven times in this passage I just read, uh, the word sinful nature is used. That is a translation that the New Living Translators decided to make of the Greek word flesh. But according to, I think, the best commentaries, um, sinful nature is not quite a big enough idea um, as a translation for the word sarx in Greek, which is flesh. The flesh is more of a realm or a domain or dominion Sinful nature just makes it sound like it's our individual problem that he's talking about. And the, sin, the sinful nature is definitely part of the larger flesh. I mean, we're wrapped up in that. But um, the flesh is more like what Paul calls the domain of darkness in Colossians 1.13. So this involves powers that are greater than us, that we're caught up in this conspiracy against God. In Colossians 1.13, Paul writes, God delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And that's what the spirit is doing in Romans 8. He's, he's delivering us out of the domain of darkness, like Moses taking Israel out of Egypt, and he is bringing us into the kingdom of the beloved son, the promised land. So the flesh is that realm of death and hostility um, and sin, and the spirit is bringing us into a land of life and peace. So I'm obviously contrasting flesh and spirit. And I... Um, I love to use the word empire. Um, 
I think it's a biblical idea. I think the flesh is one way to put it. The world, the cosmos is another word. Um, the um, empire is all over the book of Revelation. It's in the book of Daniel. Um, and I think of I think of the empire as this sark's flesh. And uh, the empire is a place of sin and death, um, of condemnation, of hostility. Um, and so that is the first thing I want to look at. And then the spirit is the realm where we are delivered out of those things into life. Um, instead of hostility, we have peace. Instead of condemnation, we're pleasing to God. So um, at present, the empire is still, you know, the one that is most obvious. I mean, we feel that right now very strongly, I think. Um, I feel like in the uh, America um, is clearly the empire. I mean, I never doubted that, but in the past, you might have thought, well, this is the exception to the rule. This powerful country that's so wonderful and with so many freedoms, and it does, but I would say, you know, even in America today, we feel the power of the empire very strongly. And then there's the kingdom, which is never a political entity, and it's the kingdom of the Holy Spirit. And one day the kingdom, although it is now an underground resistance movement, will become um, ascendant and will reign. So those two things. Uh, first of all, the empire... Um, so I, I read this, this uh, quote by theologian Miroslav Volf, who's uh, at Yale and uh, an evangelical, actually, from Bosnia. He was, he was there in Bosnia when the, the, there was so much killing going on. Um, I don't know if many of you remember that in the 90s, but uh, they divided the country of Yugoslavia up, and the, the Muslims uh, and the Christians that were there began to fight, and there was this horrible genocide, somewhat like in Rwanda. So Wolf was there during that. And uh, in this quote, he, he, he said that when, when Hitler took over Europe and the Nazi empire spread out over Europe, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a letter to Mahatma Gandhi, which I thought that was interesting. I didn't know they corresponded. Do you know about that? Yeah. And, uh, and Bonhoeffer said there's a dangerous fever in the air right now um, where people are losing self-control and they're losing... Uh, awareness of what they're doing. And Volf said, when I was in, um, you know, when I was growing up in the 90s in, in Bosnia, um, I felt that same spirit, that it, was, that it was coming back. And he actually said in this quote, he said, I feel it today. It was actually a tweet back in, in June. I feel that today. So, um, you know, I don't know exactly what he was referring to there, just the, the climate right now. But, um, I think that spiritual fever, that quote um, term Bonhoeffer used, is a great way of thinking about the empire. It is like a, it's like an airborne virus that we're dealing with right now, but it's it's mental. It's in the thoughts, so it'd be more something that is like a meme that that kind of goes viral and it infects our minds, and it's one of those things you're not aware that it's happening to you. So the empire is invisible because of that very fact. It's it's a series of thoughts and ideas and images. Um, and, and that is um, what verse five says, where um, he said, he basically says that the, the flesh dominates our thoughts. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things is the way the New Living Translation puts it, but it's being dominated um, by our thoughts. And an interesting example of this was I was once um, with another person and um, they were doing therapy. Uh, they were struggling with an eating disorder. 
and I was with them talking to the therapist. Three of us were talking, and um, the therapist asked my friend, "What percentage?" If I first of all, the therapist drew a brain, like a very simple picture of a brain, and said to my friend, "We'd color in the amount of that that um, corresponds to the amount of thought you have about food hmm. in the day." So that was a good exercise. So I was expecting my friend to maybe, like I thought if it was a quarter or a third or a half, that would be like kind of scary. Well, they drew about 75% of the, of the mind of their thoughts. And, um, it was really, it was really, uh, scary to think about that. And I just thought, what in my, my life has ever been similar to that or what, you know, that's a good thing to think about yourself. Like what, what would be the big chunk um, I think the point of the empire is no matter what the chunks are, and maybe it's not that much for you about any one thing, but the point is that the God is very small thing. And so all these things push, um, push God to the margins. I mean, the empire is pretty indifferent as to what it is that fills your mind. It could be even something like patriotism that is, you know, a, a good thing, but it could just be, um, yeah, it could be even children. It could be family. It could be things that um, otherwise we would think of as very good. But um, the one in America that's clearly a problem is uh, is our stuff. And one thing I love about our church is that I feel like we are not afraid to address materialism and consumerism. And uh, there's this book called Stuff by Randy Frost. He's a professor, I think, at Williams College in and he said, uh, he, he said that our possessions have a magical quality to us. Yeah. And it's almost like, he said, it's almost like they possess us. Mm. And he was describing the phenomenon of hoarding. Isn't there a show called Hoarders? Yeah, yeah I haven't seen that. But um, apparently the average American um, is subjected to 5,000 ads per day. Wow. I mean... The other day I was driving down the road and thinking, okay, that's, that was like 20 in about 20 seconds. Now that was like a, an area of billboards, but he was saying most of them are on the computer. 5,000, it, it was like, it was like 10% of that in the 70s. So it's like, wow. it's grown significantly. And because of that, I think I mentioned this the other day in a sermon, we have the average American has 300,000 items in their home. <laughs> like, I believe <laughs> I mean, it seems hard. Hats I, there's a lot of hats. Here. Um, and obviously, the ads are working. Companies spend 100, uh, $150 billion a year to dominate our minds with ads. If you're in marketing, I'm not making you feel guilty, I hope. I'm not trying to. Um, I guess there's a place for better and worse ads. Um, but still, um, the point is that when you're being stirred up to not be content or um, to be restless or to feel like you need more or not be satisfied with what you had. That's the empire. And it's pushing away gratitude. It's pushing away worship. It's pushing away contentment. Cause you're, if you ever get to that place of contentment, something else will just jump into your mind and grab you. So again, the, the empire is always pushing us away from God. Verse seven says the flesh is always hostile to God. Um, Literally, it says the, the flesh. So again, that's the realm of the flesh. The, the flesh will never obey God because it's 
basic stance is enmity and resistance. So verse 7 says it never did obey God's laws and it never will. And by the way, if you're interested in theology, that's probably the best verse um, underlying the doctrine of uh, total depravity. It simply mean, it doesn't mean we're, we're as bad as we could be. It means that we cannot, we do not have the strength of the willpower it, within us to obey God. Mm -hmm. that we just, a human can't do that. Yeah. Um, so that, that, I think that is the most profound verse in terms of that, um, that we simply cannot obey. It's not that we just make bad choices. It's there's a power over us. And this is why I think this is the hardest part of the passage. Paul says the sinful nature can never please God. And that's really, that is really hard to read. But, but I think the, the realm of the flesh is, could never be pleasing to God because death is not pleasing to God. Hostility is not pleasing to God. And he says in verse 6, letting the flesh or the sinful nature control your mind leads to death. And that's, um, that is both physical death, ultimately, but it's also spiritual death. I mean, when God said to Adam and Eve, if you eat that tree um, of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. They didn't physically die there. They began to physically die, but they did immediately spiritually die. And um, before that, I was talking to a friend yesterday about how... Um, he said a relationship with God should be like breathing where you don't even notice it. Just like in and out and in and out. And I think that was the way Adam and Eve were. They just, they breathed in and out. Um, they were so porous to God and his spirit. It was like a wind that just blew through them. They didn't have to think about it. They walked with God in the cool of the day. But then the second they rebelled against him, they turned on him, um, that breathability went away. You know, they, they were not porous. They were hardened. They were, they began to hide from each other with the fig leaves. They hide behind the bush. Um, when God comes to them, they shift the blame. Um, they shift the blame and they even blame God. Adam says, the woman you gave me. So in other words, they, were, they began to hide and be ashamed and hate God and the hostility. That's where the empire begins right there. So that's point one, um, the empire, which is, it, which is daunting and, um, and scary and if it weren't for point two would be uh like a really bleak outlook on life and i think that that is part of the christian worldview is that that is the reality so things are a lot worse than most people think um people with a secular mindset have a hard time dealing with certain phenomena that i think knowing about the empire allows us to as christians but then we also are more optimistic uh, than anyone possibly could be because we believe that the kingdom is now here, the spirit is reigning, and one day our bodies will be resurrected. One day Christ will reign completely. The power of the life-giving spirit, even now, verse 2, frees you from the power of sin and death. That's not in the future, but that's right now. The spirit is like Moses, and he, he leads people into the promised land. He delivers people out of Egypt. He, um, he brings life and peace where there was condemnation there's now peace. Where there was death, there's now life. Um, <clears throat> verse 6, letting the spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. And I'm going to look at those two things in um, the second half, life and peace. So first of all, peace, that's kind of the first condition, is that um, the condemnation has to be broken. The, the tension, the, the strife, the brokenness of our relationship with God, the lack of peace, the war, that has got to be broken by the Spirit. And in verse 1 says, um, no more condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. 
Um, in other words, you're completely at peace with God. There's no more hostility at all. Not from his side at all. None. And even from our side, Jesus has made the response that we were supposed to make. And so even from the human side, there's no more hostility. You know, God and humanity are now at peace through Christ. A human and God have come and made peace. And human nature in Christ has now made peace. There's no hostility. And it's not because I or Austin or any of us have made any movement towards God. Because again, you, you uh, our flesh cannot obey. It is, it is addicted to sin. Uh, it's because God came all the way to us to make peace. Like I said, he gave his son um, <clears throat> both to make our response and also um, it is part of God's response. He paid the debt for our hostility. Verse 3 says he gave his son as a sacrifice for our sins. So the, the, the atonement was not just the son doing that. The father, son, and spirit all agreed we are going to pay the price for their hostility. We're going to bear all of their enmity and all their resentment and all of their hate, we're going to bear that. Even though they created that, uh, it is to our glory and our delight and our pleasure that we, Father, Son, and Spirit, will, will enter into the situation and bear that. We will enter their pain, enter their mess, and we will bear it. And I thought of an analogy just of if, you, if you've hurt uh, a really close friend, uh, which you probably have, I have, um, especially my wife. Um, sometimes the closest friends are the ones that we hurt the most, actually most of the time. If you've hurt a really, really close friend um, <clears throat> and you feel so bad that you begin to avoid them, so this will be like over the course of maybe days, and you um, really jeopardize the friendship just by saying something awful, but then you end up avoiding them um, because you feel so bad when you see them and you're near them. That often happens. What if the friend was the one... I mean, the friend was the one that did everything to make peace. So the friend wrote you the note. The friend drove to your house. The friend knocked on your door. The, the friend rang your doorbell, even when you were hiding inside, not wanting to answer, just kept ringing it, you know, saying, I know you're in there, and, and did everything to come to you and to make peace. Um, I've never, I couldn't even imagine a human really doing that. Um, but that's what God does. He does everything to make peace. And so he says, no more condemnation. Not because you've done anything. You don't have to do anything to make that happen. That's a transaction that he has made completely, both from the human side and from the divine side. And you just join in the peace that he himself is our peace. Um, he's broken down the dividing wall of hostility. But he does the peace thing to give us life. Uh, the only reason that he makes peace is so that we could have life. The peace is just the first condition, and now the life of God breaks into our, our lives and brings us back to life, like Adam and Eve before the fall. So I came back from a couple weeks away, and um, <clears throat> our, our, my beautiful peace lily had died. I don't know if you've ever had a peace lily, but they, they just completely fold over the pot, mm. and um, I thought it was totally dead. I had two weeks, no watering, and it was kind of yellowish, and... Um, I was very sad because I, I bought that in a time um, that, where it meant something to me. So the peace lily was slumped over. And I thought it was dead, but I decided, well, I'm going to try to water this anyway. And the next day I came back and it was like completely back straight in the air. Right? Wow. So I guess that's the nature of peace lilies. So um, 
I just thought about the power of the life giving power of water. Like that's all that happened was water, a little bit of water, not even a you know half a, half a cup of water, maybe a quarter of a cup. And I thought about Jesus saying in John seven thirty seven, um, "Come to me and and drink um, my rivers of living water, and the Holy Spirit will flow from your heart." So that's the thing with the Spirit. The Spirit comes out of Christ, and it is it is His life giving Spirit. It's the water of life that He brings. Like He said that to the woman at the well, um, "I have the water of life to give you." And the spirit has so much life and so much energy that it overwhelms the flesh and the deadness. It's just like this huge cascade of water coming in and overwhelming um, the flesh. I watched uh, the two towers with my son uh, the other night. And there's a scene where the trees, um, the living trees, the imps, they destroy this great dam and the water comes in and floods this horrible, like, place that the, the evil wizard Saruman had made where he was making like horrible engines of death and swords and this water just comes and extinguishes it all <clears throat> all that horrible place of Isengard and and that's what the spirit does he comes like water and he brings us to life he gives us new life um, and, and the way that that happens uh, when the spirit is in you as living water, go back to Adam and Eve. It's, you feel the breath of, you feel the wind of God in you. It's uh, obviously it's not physical. It's not that you, it's not that you're you know you become healed all of a sudden. That can happen, but it's when you're feeling shame, you're feeling condemnation, you're feeling a lack of peace, you're you're feeling very unpleasing to God, and you cry out to the Spirit, you know, help me. Now this is both either a believer or not a believer. You just you say help me. I'm living in the empire right now. And he just comes in. He's never ignored that cry for mercy. And it's like water flowing into a desert to create an oasis. You're walking with God in the cool of the day again. You're feeling what Adam and Eve felt. It's reversing the curse. And again, it says in verse 2, the power of the life-giving spirit frees you from the power of sin and death. The spirit brings us to life. A week ago, I was talking with my friend who's a counselor, and we were walking around Salem Lake, and he, he used the phrase uh, delight deficit. Have you ever heard that? It's a counseling term. I Googled it, and I couldn't find it. So, um, you know, I don't know. Maybe he made that up. But I like the phrase. You should write a book. I should write a book. About your friend. And my friend. <laughs> I'll tell him. Yeah. You guys can co-write. Okay. Empire, kingdom, delight deficit, something combining all those ideas. But I thought about when he said that, I thought about a conversation I had had earlier that week where I was talking to a friend and um, I, was I was trying to encourage this friend, people really do love you. You know, you think that people don't love you. Um, you've got to start believing people love you. And they said, well, I think, I know people love me, but I don't really think they like me. And um, I asked them, like, tell me more about that. And they said, well, I know people feel an obligation and a duty to love me because most of my friends are Christians. And so I know they're going to love on me. You know, that phrase, love on me, um, that in that sense of love. But they were like, I don't really actually think anyone enjoys my presence. And I know a lot of y'all feel that way. I've talked to many of you, and I, I definitely get into that mindset at times too. Um, and I just went back to like, the delight deficit idea. And I told this person, no, people actually are lucky to spend time with you. Like they, 
enjoy you. I've talked to people. They, they, their face lights up when they're with you. You make any room more fun. You make a party or games more enjoyable. You're, you're a delight. Um, and I don't think they believe me at all. It's very hard for words coming from a human to convince someone of that. But that's what the spirit can do. Um, and I told them that. I was like, you need the spirit to convince you that. I said, we need a bunch of people to put hands on you and gather around you and just pray to the spirit. Uh, Romans 8, 15, which Jonah's going to preach on next week. You have not received the spirit that makes you fearful, but you have received God's spirit of adoption, and you now cry, Abba, Father. So the spirit puts you in the place of a little baby, where this little newborn, where they their face of their mother or their father is just beaming upon them. And no one looks at their newborn as like, ugh, you know, that's ugly, or that's... I hate. I wish. I wish they didn't look like that. Um, when I when I first held Rosabelle, I just started crying. And I mean, that is the father delights in you in that way, and the spirit has to convince you that you would call out Abba. So he put it, and Paul put it, Daddy. He, he didn't just put, you know, Father, but Abba, Father. And suddenly, no condemnation becomes constant delight, and not pleasing becomes infinitely pleasing and god's delight is so intense that it actually it takes some kind of visible form some kind of like something like fireworks and i'm going to close with this quote and um i want you to listen to this the delight that god the father has in god the son and when i read it don't say to yourself oh that's just because he's jesus um, because that's bad theology because the whole point of the gospel is that you get brought into the father's love for the son and it's like a waterfall just cascading down and you are brought into the spray in the midst of that 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 is the whole gospel is you're brought into the father's love for the son and and the spirit bears witness with your spirit that you're a joint heir with the son so you're not like second born you're an heir you're not overlooked um, you're not ignored you're not like half paid attention to the Father's delight is not mostly in Christ, and then, uh, and then I can kind of handle Ben, too, because he's in Christ. I mean, shockingly, the same love that the Father has for the Son, he has for us. So now I'll read this, and I'll close this in prayer. Um, Matthew 3.16, Jesus came up out of the water, out of the River Jordan, where he had just been baptized, and the heavens were opened. And I don't know exactly what that means. The heavens are open, so that's the sky is open. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. So that's why I said it has to take visible form. The Spirit of God descended like a dove and settled on him. So there's a visual behind the verbal that's about to happen. And a voice from heaven said, That is my dearly loved Son, who brings me great joy. Let me pray. Father, we beg of you to help us 